We've been, uh, for a while now, as a church, reading through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been seeing one of the accounts, four different accounts, of Jesus' earthly ministry, Uh, what he's been accomplishing, what he's been preaching, the miracles he's been doing, And, and Luke's this really cool account because Luke had the opportunity to go and interview the eyewitnesses. And his goal in writing it, different than the other Gospels, was to write an orderly account, something that's chronological, something that uh, apparently the other ones had a different approach, whether it was thematic, whether it was uh, connecting to the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, different things. But Luke's been writing down this orderly account. And today we're going to hit this kind of pivotal question where after we've seen this much of Jesus's ministry, after we've heard so much of what he said, seen the way he's demonstrated his love for humanity, uh, that he's invited them into a relationship with the Father, he's proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. We're going to try to wrestle with the same question that their communities were wrestling with then, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What category does he fit in? What box does he belong in? Because there was a variety of opinions about who he was. Some of them would be partly correct, seeing only a portion of who Jesus was. Others were probably completely wrong, uh, just like people's opinions today. Uh, Any opinion, right, it's only valuable if it's actually true. And so, If we're still investigating here, right, who this Jesus is, that's okay, right? That's a safe place to be. You should be pursuing and asking questions. And in fact, Jesus, like, sometimes was almost taken back when people too quickly came to the conclusion of who he was. Where when he encounters Nathaniel, he's like, whoa, dude, like, you're calling me the Messiah already? Like, don't you need to wait till the third date, (laughs) you know, like, don't you need to give it some time first? Like, you've hardly seen any any evidence of who I am. And and so this is what we're going to see today. So in Luke chapter 9, check out verse 7. I've got it up on the screen, my guys, thank you. Uh, It says this, now Herod the Tetrarch, so the ruler of this region, heard about all that was happening. Right, All of this kind of commotion that's been taking place as a result of Jesus' ministry on the earth. And he was perplexed. All right, Trying to figure out who is this guy? Who is this Jesus that's out and operating in my kingdom in this way? I've been hearing all sorts of ridiculous stories. Who is this guy? And one of the reasons he's perplexed, it says, because it was said by some that John, that is John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. And so, like, some people are like, I don't know, I heard maybe this Jesus guy is just John the Baptist. Come back. And look at God's working mightily through his ministry. Some said that Elijah had appeared, this ancient prophet, right, from the Old Testament, the time of the kings. And by others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. But verse 9, Herod said, John, I beheaded all right, and, and we don't necessarily get the full picture of that story in Luke's account, but John the Baptist is put to death by Herod the Tetrarch, mostly because he called out sin in his life. All right, so like John, unfortunately, wasn't he, didn't even get to be a martyr for Jesus. He was a martyr for calling someone into account for holiness, right, which 
I'd rather just die for Jesus than having to, having to do that. All right? But, but Herod's like, okay, I don't think he's John. I, was, I saw John's head, okay? Like, separate from his body, I don't think it's this guy. All right? But he's still perplexed. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. All right? And so it's okay if we don't yet know who Jesus is, as long as we're at least willing to, like, keep investigating. All right? That's what, that's what Jesus would want. He's like, all right, if you haven't figured it all out yet, if you're not willing to fully go all in and commit your life to this, at least keep investigating, because there's something unusual going on here. It should be perplexing to humanity. Jesus doesn't fit in a category like other people. A few verses later, in verse 18, it says, Now it happened as he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Right? Jesus is interested. Like, we've been having these crowds follow me. Right? We, like, sail across the sea, and then suddenly there's, like, a crowd just waiting for us. Like, you know, with, crowds are pursuing us to the other side of the sea when I've, after I've fed 5,000 people, loaves and fish, and they're like, where'd Jesus go, right? Like, like all these crowds are pursuing Jesus, but Jesus is asking his disciples, what, what have you guys been hearing about me? What are they saying about me? And some of the same things, verse 19, and they answered, John the Baptist? Some people think you're John the Baptist, come back. But others say Elijah, and others say that one of the prophets of old had risen. In the Apostle John's account of Jesus' life, in John chapter 1, verse 10, he says this is kind of like a culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry. He says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. All right, so in John's mind, he attributes Jesus as being the creator of our universe. But what's interesting, he says, is, yet, is that yet the world did not know him. All right, that all of these rumors about who Jesus was, all of these perceptions and opinions from the crowds, right, they had different ideas of who this Jesus is, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was. And some of them, like, they're, they're like, at least in the right, like, ballpark, right, saying, like, oh, maybe, maybe Jesus is just a prophet, a prophet of God come back, but he was, he was more than just that. And, and they're like kind of onto something there because even Moses said that God would have a, a new prophet arise like Moses. And he says, you know what? You guys should probably listen to that guy when he shows up. All right? So, so like Jesus, yes, was a prophet, but he was more than that. Some people categorized him just like nowadays, right, as just a good teacher. Someone among dozens of uh, generic religious followings that just say, hey, lo love people. But Jesus taught more than that. All right, Jesus didn't merely come to accomplish that goal. All right, Jesus taught with authority. We've seen that when he taught about the Old Testament law, he was able to teach with authority because he was the author, where he could give us clarity about the intent and motive that God, ha God had behind the law. That he, would, he was able to bring clarity and say, like, listen, you guys are so caught up about the law and sin in regards to when action takes place. He says, I've got to tell you, it's far worse than that for humanity. He says, sin is in the human heart. 
that part of our human condition is the sin in, inside of us that other people can't see because we do such a good job of hiding it, right? That sin is in our heart. And this is what Jesus came to resolve, right? He was more than just a good teacher. He was more than just a prophet. But who Jesus is, there's, there's really only going to be one true answer. All of these opinions about him can't all be true, right? There, there's only one thing that's actually the truth. And, and hopefully, we're willing to investigate and figure out who this Jesus is. And even if the crowds all voted and say, oh, uh, you know, 52% of us think he's John the Baptist, that doesn't make it true. Right? Even if like 30% of them voted and said, I think it's Elijah the prophet, that doesn't change who Jesus actually is. That there may only be, sadly, a, a small group of people that end up encountering and experiencing and identifying Jesus accurately. All right? And, and who Jesus is, is only one thing. Like it's, it's already true and we just have to discover and investigate and try to see who this Jesus is. And this is what matters, is how do we respond to who Jesus is, right? How do we respond to Jesus? And this is what he says in verse 20. Then he said to them, this is just his small group of disciples, not to the crowds. He says, who do you say that I am? You guys have all heard about everything that everyone else is saying about me. You've all been traveling with me. You've seen the things I've proclaimed. You've seen the miracles that I do, right? You, you've, you've encountered different people's lives have been transformed because of my ministry. Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he said, the Christ, the Christ of God, all right? And so like Peter gives this answer different than the crowd's. In Matthew's account, Matthew 16, 16, he gives us a little bit more clarity. Simon Peter answered, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? Son of John is what that means. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so notice, Jesus had an opinion about his identity, all right? It, Jesus didn't give the answer here. Peter did. But Jesus affirmed Peter's statement, right? Jesus is like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. And not only does Jesus recognize that Peter says that and believes it, Jesus himself believes it, and Jesus believes that our Father in heaven is actively rev revealing this to human hearts, right? That, that God himself in heaven is intent on believing the same thing about Jesus and revealing it to humanity, all right? This is what, what God is in the business of doing. And so, so either Jesus is incredibly blasphemous and bold and egotistical and a liar, right? Or Jesus is telling the truth that he actually is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, right? The anointed one. Like in the prophets of old, right? Uh, the prophets and the priests and the kings would be anointed as a symbol of God's Holy Spirit working in and through them, 
proclaiming truth and his kingdom to his people, calling them to repentance and inviting them back into relationship with him. All right, like that this is who Jesus is, the the Christ, the Savior that's been prophesied about. And then what's interesting is this, very counterintuitive to the mission that we have as a church. Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Right, this is still like semi-early on, first year and a half of his earthly ministry, and he's like, don't tell anyone that, Peter. Right, no, no cheating, all right? The crowd still hasn't figured out the answer yet, Peter. Don't tell anyone this just yet, all right? And uh, we as a church should not obey that command of Jesus, just so you're aware, right? You might be like, well, Brian told us not to obey Jesus, right? But this is, this is uh, no, we're no longer in the time period in which that command applies because it is superseded by a more current command of Jesus to go into all the world and proclaim this good news to all creation. All right, so, so we can't just be like, oh, Jesus, we were trying to do that one. We liked that one better, where we just don't tell anyone about you, right? It was more easy and convenient for us. But no, 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 we don't, we don't get to do that. But then this is crazy, verse 22. Part of the reason is this. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so what's peculiar here is that Jesus says that his life, part of his calling, yes, he's the Messiah, yes, he's the Savior, yes, he is the Isaiah 53, suffering servant of God, and right, part of his calling is to come to this world and not just to teach people to love each other, right, to be poured out, right, to, to redeem humanity, to let his blood be shed that we could be forgiven, that he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, don't, don't be confused, my friends, like it's a certain thing that I'm going to suffer. This is part of the reason why I came. This is what makes Jesus different than any teacher, right? I can teach you the same things that Jesus taught, but I can't die for you in that way. Right? I can't save you in the way that Jesus saves. Right? My blood cannot be shed for you in such a way that you can experience forgiveness. Only Jesus can do that. This is what makes him distinct from every other teacher, every other prophet, every other leader. Right? This is something that only Jesus can do. And this is something he comes to do. If you guys show the, the next slide where I've got three titles that we see come out of this interaction, right? Where, where Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, right? He identifies him as the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus uses this other terminology, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And you might be like, okay, so maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't agree with Peter. Maybe Jesus is like, all right, I know you just called me the Christ and the Son of God, but I'm just a dude. I'm just a human. I'm a son of man, just like everybody. That's not what son of man means. All right? Son of man was the title that Jesus most frequently used when referring to himself. But it doesn't just mean a human one. It doesn't just mean, right, a a human being, a man. It's in reference to, and we'll see the verse later today, it's in reference to Daniel chapter 7, a prophecy about this son of man, this human one, who would be elevated to a place of authority, 
seated at the right hand of God, have dominion over all of creation, and be worshipped. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, it's not like he's just like trying to like tone it down and, and play it humble. He's actually making an even more bold claim, saying like, oh yeah, I'm the one who's going to have authority over all of creation. I'm the one that all of the nations of the world will give an account to. I'm the one who will be the just judge of all the earth. All right, so when Jesus says the Son of Man title, it's actually even more bold and unsettling for those who would have heard it, right? Of like, whoa, like this is who Jesus is claiming to be. And just as Jesus says that he must suffer, that he will, as part of God's calling in his life, experience suffering in order to fulfill the Father's will on the earth. He actually says that we too, who follow him, will suffer. In verse 23, back in Luke 9, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. All right, and so Jesus indicates that uh, we too, as his followers, are going to experience a degree of suffering. And that's not somehow as if we have fallen outside of God's will for our lives. He, he says that one of the ways to follow him is to actively deny ourselves, to live a life in contradiction to our own deceitful desires, our own fleshly cravings, to, to set aside the, the fleeting pleasure of sin and choose to be counted among the people of God, right? That, that we as followers of Jesus must actively deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. We must be willing to lose our lives. And it would, in some degrees, be more convenient if he was like, you know, all my followers are going to have to be willing to die for me, which it, it doesn't include that. But I, I think it's actually harder than that. He's not just talking about the loss of life, uh, because otherwise he wouldn't have said, take up your cross daily, right? We would just take up our cross one time, and then we're crucified on it, and we die, and then, oh, well, that was it. Thanks. Like, you get your life, uh, right? That, that would be easier in some regards, but he says to do it daily. So he's not talking about just the, the single one-time loss of life, which he does uh, treasure and value the death of his, his saints, okay? So he doesn't diminish the concept of those who would die as martyrs. But he says, like, we must daily take up our cross. So the losing of our lives is not a one-time thing uh, where it's like, okay, this will be over with. It's like going to the dentist and then boom, and then I get the reward of keeping my teeth, uh, right? right? Like that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that every day to follow Jesus means to deny this and to follow him, right? That, that I'm actively choosing to put to death the members of my flesh in my pursuit of him. And he indicates that this is worth it that this is actually worth it, that the people who figure this out are like Peter. He says, blessed are you that God has revealed this to you, that this is actually a blessing to stumble upon. It might be like, I don't know, Jesus, I'd rather just not do the whole deny myself thing, the take up my cross daily thing. But no, he's like, actually, the people who have figured this out are the ones who have completely now understood 
what life is about. That this life is all about Jesus. Right? This is, this is crazy, right? This life is all about Jesus. It's not about us satisfying ourselves in this world. It's not about us building our own kingdom. It's not about us uh, trying to avoid suffering at all costs. But no, choosing to accept it and walk into it if that is what God's called us to do. Right? And in fact, to go as far as counting everything else in this life as, as loss that we might gain Christ. Right? This is what he invites us to do. Verse 25, he says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? Right? It would be a, a waste, is what Jesus is suggesting with his rhetorical question. Right? What good would it be if even every one of your physical desires was somehow satisfied? You won in every regard of what you pursued and sought after, but if you lost this, knowing Jesus, he said, that would be worthless. That would, would not have been a gain at all. Right? And speaking to someone who's like economically minded or budget minded, profit minded, the most selfish person should hear that and be like, Jesus is sharing with me wisdom right now that it would be a loss of profit if I got everything I ever wanted and lost him, right? <laughs> he continues, this is even harder. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, right? Like this is, this is heavy. So not only, right, do we have to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of Man, but be willing to follow him to the point where, where even when we're given the choice of being accepted by this world, being pleasers of men, uh, that we'd choose to be ashamed of the world and worldliness in us, in order to be counted with him, all right? Like to choose to be like, okay, I'm not going to be ashamed of Jesus. That's, that's one thing. But notice even like this, this is even, even more stumbling because like you could tell someone like, oh, I love God, right? Or, or maybe even in this, in, in this area be like, oh, I'm, I'm a fan of Jesus. And they might think of the, the friendlier things that the, the Jesus says. But no, Jesus says like, no, we can't even be ashamed of the words that he's spoken, Right? And there will be times when it's like the words of Jesus, it's, it's like, this is not going to be received well by our community. <laughs> right? like, and and, and we, we need to choose. The right response would be to trust and believe in Jesus and his words rather than be ashamed of, of even those words. And Jesus says that there will come this final judgment when the Son of Man is in his kingdom, in his glory, in his authority, and will sadly turn some away because of their shame of him. All right, and, and I just want to let us have a little bit of slack here. We all fail in this regard at some points in our lives, <laughs> right? right? Like, we all fail to keep this perfectly, but it doesn't mean we should choose to live perpetually that way. Right? We should go to the Lord in repentance and be grieved by the sin in us just as his Holy Spirit is grieved by our sin, okay? Like, like, make it right when we do fail. 
But it says this in Titus, Paul writing to uh, a pastor in verse 16. I'm going to have you guys skip to verse 16. It's speaking of, of those who don't trust, those who don't believe, those who don't identify Jesus as who he is. He says they profess to, to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, right? Recognizing the fact that like, even like the loving message of the gospel, inviting people into salvation and relationship with God, into, into God's kingdom, that it's possible to, to say or claim to have identified Jesus correctly, but to live a life in such contradiction to that claim that Jesus, like, just like Jesus saying, right, like to live ashamed of who he is, ashamed of what he says. But check this out, verse 27, he even indicates that there's a sense of urgency here. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Until they see the kingdom of God. And I don't believe, and I think I can justify, he's not talking about his second coming in that particular context. All right? That, that what he's talking about is that the very generation that he was speaking to in a, in a matter of a year and a half, a couple years, he is going to die and be raised. And they will see him coming in his glory in that regard. In, in John chapter 3, Jesus says it this way, that, that we can't even see God's kingdom until we've been born again, until we've experienced the, the new life that he pours out into us that we receive on account of believing in him. And so, so this is what he's referring to here, because if he was referring to like the second coming, well, that hasn't happened yet, uh, right? And those people aren't still standing. <laughs> uh, so... So anyways, right, but Jesus is indicating nonetheless, all right, he is going to be exalted. He is going to be glorified. He is going to be vindicated. He is going to be validated by his father through the resurrection, right? And that even the whole crucifixion experience and suffering that he endures is actually a coronation ceremony in which the son of man is being lifted up and exalted and identified as king and Christ and savior. And so this is what Jesus says about himself. This is what Jesus' disciples come to believe after hanging out with him after a long time. And I, and I want us to consider, like, could, could we believe this? J Jesus wouldn't want us to believe this uh, shallowly, in, in a fickle way of just like, oh, sure, Jesus is the Christ, yeah, sure. Right, right. No, 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 like, he, he is more than happy to provide evidence of who he is, all right? That the kind of faith that pleases God is not one that is uh, quick to jump to conclusions, but is one that is willing to seek out who Jesus is and, and experience the evidence of who he is in their lives and, and see that he does, in fact, have authority to call us to follow him, right? Yeah. So let's take a consideration. I'm going to look through a little bit of Luke's gospel real quick and just pick what we've seen so far in Luke's chronological account that would justify, that would be evidence for us to come to the same conclusion that Peter felt was sufficient for him to verify that Jesus was the Christ. All right, speed run. Here we go. Uh, Luke 2, 11. Here we go. Angel proclaiming this. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, he is proclaimed, he is announced by angels, spiritual beings, claiming that he is Savior. He's born in the right city as prophesied, I believe, in the book of Micah, right, the city of David, and he is Christ the Lord, the same kinds of things that Peter says. Or in Luke chapter 4, verse 34, uh, that Jesus, now as an adult man, probably 30 years old, as he encounters someone who is uh, possessed by demons, someone who's a slave to their sin, uh, the demon recognizes Jesus. And he says, ha, right? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so he is announced by angels and recognized by demons to be the same Christ, the Holy One of God. In Luke chapter 5, verse 20, these four guys peel a roof back and lower their friend into a house in order for him to be healed by Jesus because the crowds were packing the house. And when Jesus sees them do that, even though they're kind of like destroying someone's property in the process. Verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. He turns to this paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees in the room began to question, who is this? Right? Who is this? They're wrestling with the same question. Who is this that speaks such blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so we see Jesus, once again, he's now going around doing things that only God can do. He's doing Yahweh things on the earth in his earthly ministry. Or Luke chapter 7, when even John the Baptist, the uh, pre-beheaded John the Baptist, in jail, uh, sends his friends. He has a moment of doubt. He's experiencing suffering, and he's like, okay, maybe, what if I was wrong? Right? And he kind of has this lapse about who Jesus is. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, it says, Then these men, disciples of John the Baptist, came to Jesus and they said, John has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Right? Like, who are you, Jesus? Just, just give it to us straight. Like, our friend John is suffering in prison. Are you, in fact, the one? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus actually, oddly enough, ignores their question, it seems, for like a day. And they just like hang out with Jesus and they're like, did, did he hear us? Right? And, and Jesus then heals people. He raises the dead. He does all of these things. And then he turns to them at the end of the day in verse 22. And he says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Right? And so Jesus answers their question, I'm the one. I am the one, right? Like all of these things that are being accomplished were prophesied about by Isaiah, and he's trying to encourage his friend, not just with his own words, his own testimony, but providing evidence. Guys, look at what I'm doing, right? Look at all of the things, all of the signs that I am doing that it said the Messiah would come to do. And it's interesting, he actually says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Just like he's, he's, he's told Peter, right? Blessed are you for coming to the conclusion that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you if we are not offended, right? Not ashamed at his words. In Luke chapter 8, another encounter, the sinful woman uh, breaks into, crashes a party that Jesus is at. She anoints Jesus' feet. Oh, let's see. Luke chapter 7. Did I do that? Yeah, bam. Sorry, gentlemen. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Once again, right? Forgiving sins. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who, who is this who even forgives sins? Right? Jesus is doing things that only God can do. He's trying, he's identifying who he is by how he acts, by what he proclaims. And then in the next verse, this is really good news for us. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He indicates that sinful people experience forgiveness not as a result of our own good works, but because of our trust in Jesus, our faith in Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 8, we've seen this story. His disciples are all freaking out. They're on a boat with Jesus. He's sleeping in the back. They, They go through this storm and they wake Jesus up and shake him and say like, Jesus, don't you care? We're dying here. Right? And they even question Jesus' heart and love for them as to whether or not he cares about them. And this is what he says, right? He, he gets up, he calms the storm, and then he turns to them. Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And so we see that Jesus has given evidence to the fact that he himself is the creator of the world, but the world did not know him. And so the disciples have been seeing this evidence time and time and time again that they are willing to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of Man that Jesus says. And these same three titles show up at the end of Luke's account when Jesus is at this a phony trial in the middle of the night with the high priest. In Luke chapter 22, they're asking the same questions. If you are the Christ, Luke 22, verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe it. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God in power. And so they said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Right, that Jesus testifies on trial that he's eventually put to death for the fact that he is the son of God. He is the Christ. He is the son of man. And by son of man, He wasn't referring to merely being a human. He was referring to the fact that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is going to be raised in glory and have authority over all the earth. And so let's look at the summary of that passage, if you guys could, those three verses. Right? They ask the same three questions, the same three titles. Are you the Christ? Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. 
right? And they ask, are you the son of God? The same three things are coming up as in conversation with Peter back in Luke chapter 9. They're asking the same exact stuff, and he answers in the affirmative. He still looks like a humble carpenter. He still is like this poor man, this traveling preacher going around, and yet claiming these titles for himself. And his disciples believe it, and they put him to death for those claims. And what's interesting is one of these Pharisees, he wasn't necessarily at this scene, he might have been, but one of these Pharisees end up seeing the glorified Son of Man. One of these Pharisees end up witnessing him in his glory. And in somewhat of the reverse question, instead of looking at humble Jesus and trying to figure out who is this guy, is he the Lord, is he the Christ, is he the Messiah, is he the Savior, is he the Son of Man, this Pharisee encounters someone who is that and asks that person, who are you? Check this out in Luke cha- or Acts chapter 9, the sequel of Luke, all right? Luke 2, this is really good. Uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now as he, this is Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul to us, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul sees this glorified being, someone with authority, right, someone who is light-bearing, right, someone who is in this state speaking to him with authority. And in verse 5, Paul says, who are you, Lord? Right? Who are you, Lord? He recognizes this being, calls it sir, essentially, and that being in its glorified state says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, right? And so we see Paul have this reverse experience. Instead of the earthly ministry Jesus and everyone trying to figure out who it is, he sees the glorified creator and that creator saying, oh yeah, I'm Jesus, right? And so like it's this neat double confirmation of the identity of Jesus. And Paul, at the end of his life, He ends up saying this in a letter, Philippians 3, indeed I count everything as loss, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Right, that Paul has such an encounter with Jesus that he does exactly what Jesus says. He surrenders his own life to follow Jesus. He considers everything else this life had to offer to be rubbish or garbage compared to knowing Jesus. That he came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And he's like, knowing Jesus is worth everything else. And what's cool is he doesn't just say, right, who are you, Lord? He refers to Jesus as his Lord, right? He says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's not just recognizing Jesus as someone in authority. He's someone that he has yielded to the authority of. Right, that Paul has received Jesus as his Lord. And so guys, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And I want to ask us this question, who, who are you? Right, who are, who are we? When Peter encounters Jesus, he's like, 
get out of here, Jesus, I'm a sinful man. When the sinful woman encounters Jesus, everyone's talking about her and saying, like, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who this is. Jesus knew that this woman was a sinner. Nonetheless, he loved her. Right? Does Jesus know who we are? I'm not going to have time for the verses on the screen, but Jesus actually says many will call him Lord, Lord, but he'll turn to them in that day of judgment and say, I never knew you. Right? Instead of us, whether or not we know Jesus or identify Jesus as who he is, he's actually interested in, do I know you? Are you my disciple? Were you ashamed of me and my words, or did you choose to follow me, denying yourself and everything else? Right? Does Jesus know you? And it has nothing to do, this is the great news, it has nothing to do, knowing God has nothing to do with our own righteousness, our own sinlessness, our own good works. Our ability to know God has everything to do with his sinlessness. It's a matter of faith, trusting in him and what he's done for us, receiving the complete work of Jesus on the cross, his death, his resurrection, Right, that we would be found in him, that we would know God and he would know us in a way that isn't just knowing about us in his omnipotence, but knowing us where we willingly yield our lives to him and make ourselves known to God. So church, let's pray before we get into worship and, and hopefully you come to the conclusion or are more confident in your conclusion about who Jesus is, hopefully we can know that he knows us, all of our failures, and still loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the same God revealed to humanity in the life of Jesus. That you are the same God that we read about in Luke's account, that we hear about in in Paul's experience and, and his life spent pursuing you. You are the same God alive today as you ever have been. And that we can talk to you. We can know you. We can be known by you. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to those who love you as you have promised. That as a result of loving you, we can know you for who you are. That as a result of your sinlessness, your perfection poured out for us, we can have relationship with you in which there's no shame and no condemnation. And I pray, Lord, that likewise, we would have no shame of who you are and no shame of your word that we would be willing to deny ourselves, that we could follow you and experience the joy, experience the love, experience the calling that you have for each of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.